What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, host of the What to Know podcast show and CMO of W2O. And today I have a guest that uh, I've had a lot of really amazing guests on this show, but this is going to be one that I think is going to blow a lot of you away. Um, it's a woman named Ton Hall. She actually lives relatively close to me. I live out in the East Bay in the uh, Bay Area. And I met Ton through a neighbor of mine, Nancy Morgan. So I should nod to Nancy because Nancy helped orchestrate this. So first of all, welcome, Ton. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today, Aaron. appreciate it. Well, it's, it's an honor, and I truly mean that. Um, you have a day job, and usually I like to start with people's backgrounds. Uh, that job pays the bills, and we won't focus on that because it's somewhat immaterial to what we're going to talk about. More importantly, you have a, uh, a very critical focus as the co-founder with your husband of an organization called the Miles Hall Foundation. We're going to talk more about that in a minute in the show. Um, but it's in honor of your son, Miles Hall. And I'd like to start the show by talking a little bit about your son, um, what a wonderful, amazing human being he was, and, and just add a little bit of color to that if you can. So Miles was definitely loved by his family. You know, we, my husband and I, we met at San Diego State, um, fell in love, had children right away, and Miles was a product of that. And he was just brought up with so much love. He had so much, um, he was the kind of person who lit up a room when he walked in, all, every at every year when Miles is done with school, his teachers talked about how much they enjoyed him in the in the class. He had a lot of energy, very vibrant, and um, he was well liked. And he also uh, was a he played basketball when he was a freshman in high school and had he got on the honor roll. And he also became a like a self taught musician. So he taught himself how to play the piano, and he taught himself how to rap and um and do some really really cool things like that and uh he had a lot of friends he was really close to his family and uh but around 18 is when we started noticing some changes in, in his mental health well thank you for sharing that and I, I did see the video of him playing the keyboards and i just it gave me a smile because you could tell just how passionate he was about doing that and i have kids that are musically inclined as well um we start to now pivot a little bit to the, the less smiley and less you know, fun part of it. Last June, a terrible life-altering thing happened to you and your family. And uh, you just mentioned the, the mental health piece, but he was having a mental health emergency. So you called 911. And I think this is a really important piece to the story. And, and you've been good at telling this. Give a little bit of background around your relationship with the local police and why it was that you didn't think making this 911 call when the police arrived at your house was going to, you know, end up in a, you know, a horrible situation. We did have a relationship with the police. And the reason is, is because my son, we live in a predominantly white area and he's African-American. And he started at one point went around when he was 18, he thought he was Jesus and he was knocking on people's doors. And I was, I was afraid for him. I was afraid that someone, you know, may take it wrong and not understand so I took a class so I would learn more about like mental illness and see what was going on with him. And one thing they recommended was just making sure that like local law enforcement knew who, who he was and that he belonged in this community. So that's kind of where I started the relationship. I had called the non-emergency line because he was, you know, he was, he was just 
knocking on doors, nothing, nothing bad. Um, but I did want to make sure that the, the authorities knew who he was. So I made that first initial call um, years ago, um, years before Miles was shot, and established a relationship. And I felt confident. I felt like, like they were listening and they wanted to help me and my son. They even assigned us um, a, another person who came along with the police who was like a social worker to give him like resources. So I was thinking that, you know, this was that they knew what they were doing. They were trained and we could trust them. And we, the year before Miles was shot in 2018 is when we were finally got a successful hospitalization for him with the help of the police. Because in mental illness, there are certain criteria you have to make to get help. And that's to be a danger to yourself, danger to your others, or gravely ill. And Miles never fit any of those categories. So we knew we had to get him help and get a diagnosis because he had never had a diagnosis. So we knew that potentially for, for later, if we wanted to get him a conservatorship or um, that he needed to have a, a diagnosis on hand. So we were successful with the police help getting him a 5150, which is a non-hospitalization. And, um, and that happened in 2008 in August. And so we were feeling confident. Uh, Miles was doing really well after he got that hospitalization for about, about eight months. He got a job. Uh, he was able to, you know, wanting to just do more. He wanted to have a family, wanted to have a girlfriend. Uh, so we were seeing really positive things happen with him. And so on June 1st, the day before, Miles was shot. I had actually reached out to the police um, just to let them know, hey, you know, Miles is having psychosis. So again, he started, he didn't really think it was Jesus, but he was just, he was, had a different behavior and it wasn't, he wasn't violent. I wasn't concerned for our safety. The reason I had called that day is because I had already had a relationship. So I called first, I called the non-emergency line and then the sergeant called me back and uh, the sergeant explained to me that yes, he remembered our family. He was actually one of the officers at our house last year. He said, you know, I will make sure that, you know, people on the forest know what's happening and that, you know, that he's in psychosis right now. So when I got off the phone with that person, I, I called the mental health officer that I, I told you about before. I left her message on her cell phone and also let her know that Miles was having some psychosis again. And, um, and then the next day, um, Miles was in a in full psychosis and was in a mental crisis, a mental health crisis. And um, one of our neighbors, because um, we have a very close knit community here, like we yep. do four things together, progressive dinners. Um, we go on trips with with our neighbors. We are very close with our people around here. We have a community here, so everyone looks out for each other. And they saw Miles in the backyard, and he was trying to plant some flowers. So they gave him a a garden tool. Yep. And they said, Hey, Miles, you know, I think this might help you do this a little bit better. So I gave him that garden tool. And so Miles, that day, the, um, on the day he was shot, uh, was carrying that around. And then um, he actually, um, he ended up breaking our a window in our room. And we knew at this point, we have certain, there's certain criteria that we have to get to get help from the police right. and we were asking them for help. So then we called the police um, and let them know that my son was having a mental health episode and that we needed help. We didn't call because we were afraid for our lives. 
he wasn't violent towards us. He wasn't violent towards anyone in the community. Um, so that was where the 911 call. My mom also called as well because she was, she knew as well, like the things that we had to do to get him help. And then another neighbor called as well. So, you know, there are several, several different calls that, that happened that day. Well, and I think this is one of the difficult things, and this is one of the things that we'll probably cover a little bit later is you don't have a lot of options at that place, right? It's not like you can just call the hospital and you did try calling your um, mental health professional and you got their voicemail. And so you know that there's a problem happening and you want to turn to these people to help you. Now, unfortunately, and this is where things do get tragic, uh, you call 911, your mom calls, the neighbor calls, the police show up, they've been forewarned. And tell us a little bit about what happened after that. Yeah. So um, at that point, yes, we had actually Miles. Miles was, um, you know, in a rant. So we actually didn't. We left the house. So we called because he also was like, you know, I'm Jesus. This is my house. So we were also trying to be respectful of his psychosis and where he was. Um, so we had left. And um, so the 911 call happens. I'm on the phone with them. I'm explaining what's going on. And she keeps interrupting me for one, too. I wasn't even able to, I was trying so hard to ex explain what was really happening. And this is really a medical emergency, but she kept interrupting me. And then, so I finally get off the phone with her, the 911 call. And then within two minutes, two, two seconds, the mental health officer calls me and she's like, I'm so sorry. I got your call yesterday. I'm so sorry. I didn't call you back. What's going on. And so now she's involved. So I'm feeling confident. Well, at least she's at work today. You know, phew, right. thank goodness. You know, thank goodness this, this officer is here and she's going to be able to help us because she's, she has more training than anyone else. Right. So she's like, okay, you know, asking me questions about what is he like, what colors. And so I, I felt very confident. I really did. I didn't think because um, a property damage that anything would happen to my son. I, I really, really, I really trusted them. And, and that's the, that's the hard part is you trust someone and to help you, especially when there's a broken system. So, so yeah. So then, um, then I guess for about four officers come on scene. Uh, Miles is in a, a cul-de-sac near our house in the back of our house and he has a garden tool and he, at this point, thinks it's a staff. It's like a, it's a, something from God. So he thinks that this is like a, like a spiritual thing. He's, he's not thinking this is like a violent thing or he's, he hasn't even done anything with it except property damage. And so when the police arrive, there's four officers. One of them beans bags miles within 30 seconds of their arrival. They're standing in like a military stance and they beanbag him. And then shortly after, like probably 30 seconds after their gunshots, Miles was running with, with his, with the pole and he was not even holding it up high. He was holding it to his side really tight. And, um, he was shot four times and he was shot four times, like in the side. And then I think maybe in the back as well. And, um, and unfortunately that officer that was on the phone with me was, she came and she came too late. And she came with a taser in her hand, not ready to have like lethal, lethal force for him. So then we, we get the call and they're like, come to John Muir right away. So we get to, we go to John Muir and the officer's there as well with us. And she just comes up to me and she's like, Tana, I'm so sorry. She's like, you guys did everything right. You guys are the model family for mental illness. You were trying to, you know, get him, get him help. And, you know, she was crying and she was very upset as well. 
and um, and then Miles he died within an hour at the at the John Muir, and um, and then our life hasn't has dramatically changed um, from that day, that point. Well, <clears throat> first of all, I'll say that I'm sorry. I mean, I just. <laughs> This is where I said, <laughs> I probably would get emotional somewhere during here, but um, you're so brave. And, and I know you've had to tell that story way more times than you would ever like. And I heard you quote on, a, on your town hall that you did the other day to one of our local Facebook groups that was to, you know, 2,300 people. You said if Miles was white, things would have been different. And this is the sad reality. And you said up front, you know, you live in a predominantly white neighborhood. And obviously there's mental health at play but there's skin color at play. And this is, I know why people are so upset right now. This is why people, it's like, we can't see this keep happening. Right. And so <clears throat> the good thing that comes out of this, if there's any kind of a silver lining that could ever come out of a child's death is that you started something called the miles hall foundation. And so I want you to tell us more about its mission to support and protect the lives of those suffering from mental illness, because I know that this is such a critical issue and you started this, I think, almost a year ago. And you said to me when we were prepping for this, like you could have laid in bed and cried and not done anything. But instead, you picked yourself up off the couch. Your husband picked himself up and you moved forward and you said, let's put some light into the world and let's try to right some wrongs, both in your son's name as well as for other children that will you know, end up suffering or could end up suffering like this. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the system is broken. I mean, right now... You're supposed to criminalize your, children, your your loved ones when they don't need the police to come. So now it has to be that our foundation is going to help other families who are who are in a similar situation as us, but they're so stuck. So we have to have a different criteria that fits into danger to self, danger to others, gravely ill. We need something else that will help protect our loved ones, and that's really the Miles Hall Foundation is going to be able to create that. And I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like yet, but I'm, I, I'm telling you right now, I, I, I know that a non-police response is, a, is going to be like our goal. And that's going to be statewide, hopefully nationwide, because it, uh, the police just can't come when they're responding to someone who's medically, medically ill. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is following the fatal shooting of, of Miles, uh, you were quoted in the Mercury News, one of the local papers here saying, we are betrayed by a system we had to trust. We're forced to trust. Our option was the police. Again, this is at the crux of what's going on right now. So I'd love to know, I hate to even ask you this, but what was your reaction when you first heard about the death of George Floyd? I know he wasn't mentally ill, but he happened to be the same skin color as your son seemingly did as little to sort of merit this as your son and yet ended up you know, mur murdered at the hands of the police. So. How, what was that first thought that went through your head? I mean, for one, you've seen this happen all the time. So that's one thing I'm learning is it's not just George Floyd. It's happening everywhere. And it's, and I'm seeing now that I'm a victim or a, or a family of someone who's been murdered by the police, it happens all the time. I have a new relationship with all these people that I don't want to be friends with, but now we're in the same community now. So it's happening all over. It's just not everyone doesn't even know about it. So for me, it's, it's seeing that, that the police are, they're not held accountable for the work, what, what happens to our loved ones. And this one thing with Miles is that they put those officers back on the street within 10 days. I mean, do you think that 
as a as an officer, if you took someone's life, you're ready to go back to work. Yeah, I mean, right. it's just it's it's insulting to them. It's insulting to us, and it's it's not healthy. And so when I see something like with George Floyd, I mean, it's 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 awful. You know, it's it's beyond awful. I mean, um, yeah, it's it's just devastating. Well, and I feel like we can talk about this because whether you've wanted to or not, you've been conscripted into speaking at a number of these local events, these protests. And I know that people are angry. Thank goodness that they're actually doing good things by being out there and protesting. I plan to be out there this week um, on Juneteenth. Our company gave us the day off, thank goodness, to be able to honor you know, uh, this momentous occasion of the end of slavery, which has led to a lot of where we are right now, right? Unfortunately, let's talk a little bit about the message that you deliver at these events. I know part of it is telling your story, but what's, what's the words of inspiration or words of support that you can offer to these people that are out there wanting to bring about change? I would say, especially um, the people who have white privilege, right? I mean, that is, it's so key that, that you wake up, right? You wake up and you see, and, and, it, and it's, it's happening. It, when it was already happening in Walnut Creek, like our white allies were already awake. It's just the city council wasn't awake, right? So my, when I go out to speak and, and talk and protest, it's to let people know that don't be silent. Speak up for your, for your black friends. Speak up for the minorities. Um, be a voice and use, and use your privilege. To, to the advantage to help others because as we're seeing on TV and we're seeing all over the world nation that we're not, it's not, we're not treated the same. And that's one thing with miles is I will tell you right now with all the history that we had with that Walnut Creek police department, there's no way that would have happened if, if he wasn't. And he, he looked a certain way, right? So he had, a, he had, I mean, he had like a, something over his head, like who cares? It's just a shirt. <laughs> You know, I mean, but it's this implicit bias right. that is ingrained in all of us. It's not ingrained just white people. It's ingrained in, in, in all different nationalities. But it's implicit bias against other people and not understanding. And that's where right now we want to break down that implicit bias. Well, that I think helps answer some of the questions of, you know, what do we do to bring about change? I do want to talk about a word that you just used. And it's a word that one of my colleagues, Abby Hayes, just brought into my vocabulary in a new way. And that was an ally or allyship is, you know, what she was teaching us about. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that because, you know, I am a 51 year old white guy and there are a lot of people that look like me or, or women that are white with white privilege that are genuinely wanting to help. Right. And she said that one of the most important things we can do, like at work, it's mentorship it's allyship and really creating a path forward for people that are particularly people of color. You mentioned that. And so talk a little bit about like, what is your expectation and how can people really think about being an ally to people of color to help bring about this societal change that we desperately need? Yeah. I mean, I would say just like how it started in Walnut Creek, there was people I don't even know that were starting to show up to city council meetings. They didn't even know me, but they were there. They were ready to hold up a sign. They, they were ready to speak in front of a podium, and they didn't even know me. 
So it's just speaking up and not being silent. Like, and that's, that's what we've seen. That's the problem is so many times people are not using their voice and it's not that hard. You can just go in a room and show support and hold up a sign and say, Hey, I'm here. So it's not like you even have to say anything, but sometimes your actions when you're in the room with somebody is just showing that you're showing up for them. So when you're an ally, you're someone that you can trust. You're someone that is going to want to work with you to, to get a certain goal. So I say for, for my family and other families I'm seeing around the nation and that I've met is that these people we don't even know are coming. And it's every, all different people throughout the na different nationalities, which is beautiful. Well, thank you. And I want to be an ally. So thank you for helping to make me smarter. Um, I want to end on a, as positive a note, I guess, as we can. And that is we have an opportunity to do good here. Um, what is your request to this audience listening? Where should they go and what can they do to support your critically important cause as well as, you know, the, the cause of other institutions or organizations that are trying to help families and people with mental illness not suffer the same fate and, and to be protected? I mean, I would say um, some things that you guys can do is, is, like I said, not be silent, right? Speak up. Um, which I've been seeing, I, you know, going to the rally in Lafayette where your family was, um, was beautiful. There were so many people and so many great signs and people just wanting to learn and how, how they can make change. Uh, so for me, um, as I said, we have our foundation. Our foundation is going to create change. We're gonna, we are going to have that non-police response to mentally ill. So that's one way, justiceformileshaw.org. Um, Black Lives Matter is um, very popular right now as well. I know they're doing a lot of really positive things with the money that they're raising. And, um, and also NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness. There's such a stigma with mental illness. And I will tell you right now that I never got caught up in that stigma. I was never embarrassed of my child, ever. Like I, as soon as he started showing that he had mental illness, I let all my friends know. I let all my neighbors know. I was not embarrassed of my child. And he didn't even understand he was sick. He didn't even understand it. But I thought it was important that we weren't isolated and alone. So I would say National Alliance of Mental Illness is a great resource for people to go to. Well, thank you for sharing that one in particular because I know that you had mentioned <clears throat> taking a course and that was where you had taken a course uh, we know them as an organization and they do great work. And I love what you said because, you know, it, you wouldn't have a stigma if your child had cancer or, you know, had diabetes or any other kind of life-threatening illness. So why should you be? So that's a very powerful message. So first of all, uh, this is Aaron Strout and I'm the host of the What's No podcast. But I've had Ton Hall, who's just been an amazing guest. She's the co-founder of the Miles Hall Foundation. But more importantly, she's the mom of Miles Hall and doing amazing work. So thank you, Tana. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it too. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.